Amen, amen. It's good to be with you guys this morning. And if you could just get your Bibles out and get them open to John chapter 14. Um, I want to start by um, pointing to something that we've been talking about in our church over the past few months in different times. And uh, over the past uh, year, uh, really, uh, really over the last calendar year, um, our staff and elders have been um, processing carefully and slowly asking the question, how do we align Christ's church with the mission? Like how? How do we carefully and, and purposefully simplify the work of ministry so that what is happening in our church, that what is resulting from the ministry of our church is that we are making disciples that are making disciples, that, that we're really fulfilling the mission, and we know and, and, and want you to hear that every person at Christ Church is valuable to God and a gift to our church. If we're living into that so that everyone can experience the reality of that truth. And we've been asking the question really purposefully, like, how do we connect people to the church? How do we care for them well? How do we give counsel from God's word in multiple ways to develop your faith in life so that you can fully engage into the mission of God, that you, like Jeremy just said in announcements, can use your gifts to serve the church, and so that we can send you with those gifts into the lost world to share the gospel. Gather, disciple, send. Those are are, our pictures and descriptors of a healthy church. And that's what we want to be, and we believe that one of the things that's required in that is is that we simplify the church so that we stop doing what happens so often in the church is that we go broad and shallow, but instead we want to simplify our focus so that we can go deeper, deeper into the things of God, deeper towards the mission that God's called us to. In March, we shared um, a vision frame that's really going to guide us moving forward as a church. If you weren't here during that time, if you're newer to our church, or if you just want a reminder, you can go to this website, mychristchurch.org, slash who we are. And Chris has put that together uh, there. And, uh, and so why am I highlighting this? As we have our Bibles open to John 14, I'm highlighting this because this message is going to show us what restrains the mission, what holds it back, and what promotes or encourages the mission. And so I want you to be clear on the things that we're chasing after as a church. So read this passage with me. We're in John 14. We're at the end of this first section, really, of this um, sermon that Jesus gave, this parting words. Verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Remember earlier, what did they do? They were troubled in heart. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. There's power in that. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And we pick up this 
a message, this series, next week, you're going to find that at this point, Jesus and the disciples are getting up from the upper room and they're starting to move or journey or walk towards the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples were troubled, still, trying to navigate through what it meant to, to suddenly have every course that they thought they were on it was suddenly altered. They, they were committed to following Jesus, and now Jesus was like, where I'm going, you can't follow me. And he told them that he's going away and that he'll return, but they still don't get it. And, and so he clarifies the mission. He tries to explain the plan to him, them. That's what we talked about over the past few weeks. He teaches them about the Holy Spirit. They'll bring peace to their hearts. That was last week's message. And then after a careful and loving counsel, he tells them to get their focus off their troubled hearts in this passage, off of self. He calls them to see the redemptive plan of God unfolding, to rejoice in what God is doing, and to follow Christ's example of willing self-sacrifice for the fulfillment of the mission. Each of these lessons are intended to prepare the disciples then and disciples now how we can extend the redemptive plan of God in our day to the glory of God. How it's going to play out through the church of Jesus Christ until Christ returns is still as important to the heart of God as it was when Jesus was communicating these things to prepare the disciples to lead the church back then. Just as important. And so the big move this morning, what comes from this passage and it saturates all of the New Testament is to orient your life around fulfilling God's redemptive plan. Orient your life around it. To build and determine all of the ways that you live your life around God's redemptive plan and fulfilling it. Not someone else fulfilling it. Don't look to the left or the right. God's talking to you right now in this message, calling you to orient your life around fulfilling God's redemptive plan. And to get there, Jesus lovingly corrects them and then gives them an encouragement forward. And so let's hear the same this morning for our lives. First, correction. Address self-centeredness. Address self-centeredness. Jesus, you get these glimpses of his graciousness. And so the beginning of 14, we hear that the disciples are troubled in heart and Jesus patiently and lovingly, as we walked through in this series, addressed their heart. But he gets to this point and now he's in a place where he's correcting them. He's confronting their heart. See, at this point still, the disciples, they, they thought that Jesus was going to be the coming king that was going to overthrow the Roman government, that oppressive Roman government, and establish a new kingdom and reign as king on earth. They did not understand the leaving part. Like verse 29, look what it says. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. There was an aspect that the disciples, they hadn't even put their faith in Christ because they didn't even fully understand his revelation. They, 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 they were following Christ. They believed that he was a good teacher and that he was performing miracles and it, it caused them to be drawn to him and committed to him. But they, did not, they had not yet put their faith in him. They didn't even understand the fullness of his work because he hadn't yet died or resurrected. 
But he's like, what I'm teaching you is in preparation for your later faith in Christ. It's beautiful. Then in verse 28, Jesus actually, as a result of this, he sort of challenges their love for him in a kind way, not a really confrontational way. He's like, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. He's saying there, if you would have understood beyond the way that you're feeling troubled about your personal reality sort of being shaken by the, the redemptive plan that I have that you don't even fully understand, instead of being focused on, on your own hearts being troubled, if you would have understood, you would have rejoiced. But the problem was is they couldn't see past the fact that he was leaving them. They, they were still concerned with how it would impact themselves, that they couldn't see past it to see and consider what God was doing. Unfortunately, they were still focused on self. D.A. Carson affirms this point and applies a challenge from this passage. Look what he writes. This quote helped me the, and, and challenged me. The failure of these first disciples, sad to say, has often been repeated in the history of the church where Christians have been far more alert to their own griefs and sorrows than to the things that bring their master joy. Oof. I don't know about you, but that, uh, that has a way, that truth, when I understand it, has a way of correcting some areas of my life. It's, it's, it's and so what, what we see here and we get a little glimpse into is that we want to be a people who are alert to our, our griefs and sorrows. Instead, sometimes we can be alert to our griefs and sorrows instead of the things that brings God joy. And that's caused by a flesh that consistently wars against the Spirit of God. And it's reinforced and cultivated by the culture of our world, isn't it? Man, that is the way of the world that's living under the ruler of this world, Satan, that without God's redemptive plan, retraining your mind and your heart, you are being trained to focus on yourself. Any move in my life outside the, the work of God's Spirit, walking by God's Spirit, coming under God's Word, being surrounded in community, any move away from that, I am drawn to a focus on myself. For a moment when I don't orient myself around the gospel and around the purpose and around the mission, I, just like you, will find myself trained by our world to focus on self. This week I went to uh, Amazon.com and I searched self book. 100,000 results. Page one gave me all I needed to share with you some delightful titles that I am not endorsing. I am more mm, making fun of. First one, uh, number one, self-love workbook for women. Number two, self-knowledge, book of essays. Mm, just can't wait for that one. Four Agreements, A Practical Guide to Personal Freedom. This, was my, this is one of my favorite titles. Good Vibes, Good Life. How Self-Love is the Key to Unlocking Your Greatness. This was the best one, though. This is a legit title. I am the love of my life. <laughs> and also very alone. <laughs> Unbroken, a year of self-care. It just gets better and better. 
The messages in these books are a reflection of the culture. And when you act like, like I do at times, outside of the counsel and the direction of God, we look in our lives in the way we respond as foolish as those titles. The focus is on self-protection and self-satisfaction and self-fulfillment and self-image and self-identity and self-help and self, 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 right at the center. That is the current of our culture. And let me promise you, this is not like a lazy river sort of, sort of current. This is like category four or five rapids. It will take you for a ride and it will take you down. And it will literally, based on the schemes of the enemy, it will literally try to drown you in self-consumption. And God is calling us to go against the current. <laughs> and, and you can't go against that current in your own strength. I've tried, I've tried to paddle against it, just more effort, maybe I'll move against the current. No, that requires all of the supernatural work of God through his word, through his ways, through his will. So, so how? How do we address self-centeredness? Well, first, let's identify where self-centeredness is leading us and why it is dangerous for your soul. So just for a moment, look to any place in your life where you might tend to be self-focused. Walk carefully, process slowly in that. I want you to notice how self-centeredness always plays to your fallenness. It always places place to some area, the scheme of the enemy is to take advantage of some area of weakness and create a, a sort of compulsion with self, a protection of self. And here's what I want you to do to help you identify these places. I want you to notice how a focus on self creates a fragility. You're fragile in the places where you're consumed with self. I can identify places where I'm focused on myself because those are places where if you rub against that or come against that, I find myself getting sad. I grieve. I am frustrated or I'm angry. I'll respond in some way, in a way that's not honoring to God. Here's what I've noted. The more self-centered you become, the more fragile you will be. The more self-centered you become, the more fragile you will be. So I want to call us to confess self-centeredness that you see in your life. God would, I'm really self-focused in this area of my life. Pray that to him. In, 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 it is a place of insecurity and anxiety and anger and frustration. Please help me to get the counsel to process slowly, to address self-centeredness. Then second, and most importantly, in a move away from self-centeredness, note this, turn from self-centeredness by submitting under the authority of another more worthy Here's the ironic thing. Both in the war against sin and the flesh, what you cannot do is try to focus on how I just need to beat that self-centeredness. Because guess what happens then? Then you become really focused on self. And you're like, oh, hold on. I need to be focused on not thinking that, not doing that, not behaving in that way. And then what happens is I'm just more focused on self. I'm like, why am I not getting better? Why is there not change happening? Why is there not sanctification happening? Because the move is not to become more uh, focused on self. The move is to 
turn from self-centeredness by submitting under the authority of another more worthy. To submit under the authority of another more worthy means that I recognize and confess that God is more worthy to lead your life than you. And confessing and repentance of self-centeredness always involves a move to something to someone more worthy. When Jesus says here, he's like, if you would love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And when that's happening, now you're walking by faith. It's not just mental agreement. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, I'm turning uh, to actively trust and surrender to the ways, the wisdom, and the will of God for the fulfillment of the mission, and I'm not leaning on my own ways. And let me promise you that that move, this direction, will bring more joy and satisfaction and freedom and love and purpose and care than any book on self. Turning from self-centeredness, note this also, is not a weak move, but a wise move. It is a careful process of moving away from the weakness of self to the wisdom of following God. Turning from self-centeredness is not a weak move, but a wise move. It's a careful process of moving away from the weakness of self to the wisdom of following God. So, so, so church, listen. Nothing that God wants to do in your life and in my life is going to be accomplished if we continue to allow self-centeredness to run rampant. And so, this move that Jesus is confronting in his disciples, if you had loved me, you would have rejoiced. If you would have known this, as opposed to being focused on your feelings and your emotions, would have turned you to this next move. So addressing self-centeredness sets us up for number two, the encouragement. Follow Christ's example of willing self-sacrifice. Follow Christ's example of willing self-sacrifice. Jesus modeled this so beautifully. Willing, 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 underline that, circle that, that's the key descriptor of self-sacrifice. I don't self-sacrifice in a biblical way following the model of Jesus if I do it because I feel obligated. This is what we talked about a few weeks ago when we talked about obedience needing to come out of love. It needs to be flowing. It's a response to God's love. Self-sacrifice because that's what other people do or that's what I've seen and known. It's, it's, it's not tradition. Like that's why I sacrifice. I, my, my self-sacrifice is willing. That's what Jesus modeled. He entered our world as a child. He faced all the temp- same temptations we face living in human flesh. He walked faithfully uh, to fulfill his ministry while facing constant resistance. He endured the pain of torture, leading eventually to his death on the cross. Full and complete willingness to sacrifice himself for the mission. What Jesus did was both beautiful and challenging. It has captured the minds and the hearts of people for centuries and for those who really know what his sacrifice calls his followers to do, it is deeply challenging. 
Jesus highlights his willingness to sacrifice himself to his Father's will when he says there, I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. I alluded to that earlier. What I want you to know is this is not talking about, this is the Trinity. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not saying, well, the Father is above me in value. What he's modeling for us is this. That that a willing self-sacrifice says, your purposes are greater than mine, and the greater part is me coming under your redemptive plan, and I am going to do everything that I am equipped and called to do to help fulfill that redemptive plan. That's what Jesus did with his life. And it's beautiful and it's challenging. But I want you also to see the why. Because the why is critical. Look in verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me. There's the outworking of, of this reality. And he says, look at that, so that, any place you see so that is a clue you're about to hear the why. So that is a clue that you're about to move to a purpose statement. And so he says, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Why, why was he willing to sacrifice? Because he wanted the world to know. He wanted the world to know about the love and the power and the beauty that was happening within the Trinity. He wanted the world to know that in his love for the Father, there was a submission of self that would free us to be everything that God's called us to be. That in the submission to the purpose of the redemptive plan, that we find our true purpose that our heart longs for that the world tries to depict and put in front of you in various ways, but it's always lesser than the purpose of God. He was more concerned in this with the Father's will and mission than his own. I love this summary by Colin Cruz in his commentary. Follow along with me. Notice the connections he makes in this. Jesus' impending passion and death was not a defeat suffered at the hands of the prince of this world, but an act of obedience to the Father. The peoples of the world, like us, must learn this. And if they do, they may cease to be the world and be numbered among Jesus' disciples. Notice what's critical to be a disciple of Christ. We often and rightly see Jesus' death on the cross as the demonstration of God's love for the world, and of Jesus' special love for believers. But this verse reminds us that his death was first and foremost a demonstration to the world of his love and obedience to the Father. It is a timely reminder that everything does not revolve around us, but around God. Christ's obedience was out of love, yes, and the, and the end result of the love was not, to, was not to make God's love about satisfying my purposes. It was to invite me into the revelation of God's love so that the purpose that God had in his redemptive plan could be played out through my life. And he's equipped me and called me to it. And that his end goal is to produce disciples then and now who were willing to sacrifice everything to fulfill God's redemptive plan. And on top of it, just to throw in a little bonus, look at verse 30. Here's a tremendous blessing that comes from willing self-sacrifice. 
verse 30 says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world, that's Satan, that's the enemy of our souls, is coming, he has no claim on me. Like, I don't know about you, but like the enemy and the way he works in our world, like I want to stand with Jesus. I want to stand in a place where the enemy has no claim on me. I want that for you. I want that for my life. Here's the thing. When, when it's all been empowered by the Spirit of God. So there's not a can I or should I question here. When you are actively and rightly sacrificing yourself for the mission of God out of a love for God, Satan has no claim on you. The other versions say no power over you. He has no claim, he has no power over the person who is committed to the mission of God with all of their heart and life. See, we don't defend against Satan by trying to build the perfect defense. I'm just going to analyze all his schemes, and then I'm just going to figure out how to like, dodge the fiery arrows in Ephesians, and, and I'm just going to try, to try to build this perfect defense. No, your defense against the schemes of Satan is to focus your life on sacrificing self for the mission of God. When you're focused there, Satan has no claim on you. No claim on you. It puts you in the perfect place to defend against the ruler of this world because he's got no ability to get his hook of temptation in you when your eyes are focused on the mission of God. He's like, I'm gonna go after someone else. That person's clearly leaning on God. The spirit of God is active in their life. They're not distracted by other things of their flesh. They're focused on the mission of God. It reflects what Grant Osborne wrote. He said, Satan cannot overpower the saints. Please, church, hear that. Satan cannot overpower the saints. He can only deceive and tempt us. When we depend on Christ and the Spirit, which is going to produce a move towards fulfilling the mission of God, we can say with Jesus, he has no hold over me. Walk in that. But walk in that, not by trying to get there, but by being focused on the mission of God. That is just awesome. And there's nothing more, church, compelling than this purpose. Willing sacrifice, both to advance God's redemptive plan and to protect my life from the temptations of Satan. Life focused on the mission. Our articulation and understanding of the mission of God, as, as simple as we can, is, is that our calling in a, in a response and a desire to glorify God is to love God, love others, and make disciples. In the simplest form, there it is. And we know that the path to strengthen, to live in that, to experience the blessing of walking in that requires sacrifice of self. It requires it. It requires sacrifice of self to fulfill the mission. I don't know if you recognize this as clearly as I have over the past um, 10, now 20 years almost in ministry. Um, is that the church is not trending in a great direction in our country. I hope you're thankful like I'm thankful for the, for the people that gather here week in and week out. 
I'm so deeply thankful for the ways I see people a living, compelled by Jesus, wanting to willingly self-sacrifice their life for the purpose and the fulfillment of the mission. But unfortunately, it's not trending in a great direction in our country. Our entire pastoral staff and elders are currently reading this book that um, has been encouraging to us and helpful to us in navigating and leading in this season. The book's called Canoeing the Mountains, and if that sounds difficult, that's pretty much the scenario right now in the church. And the book, it sort of sounds an alarm that I think clarified it without being overly alarmist. The author highlights that what the church needs to realize is that we've, we've in, in America especially, we've passed from a period of time that people referred to as Christendom to post-Christendom. And, and in this, I can promise you, a church, uh, uh, being in West Michigan now for eight years and, and 14 years before that being in Chicago, I've told people this. I feel like moving to Chicago in some ways on some issues of the church and the direction it's headed, I feel like I've gotten, it, I've got, I've gotten a time machine and I went back 10 years when I came to West Michigan. And some of the things that are shocking some of you right now that are happening in the area and the culture, I'm like, well, why are they shocked? And then I had to realize like, West Michigan, in some of the ways, is trailing behind some of the places that I've been, particularly Chicago. See, for centuries, Christianity, in good ways and very bad ways, sat at the center of Western cultural life. And that reality is changing everywhere. And churches aren't adjusting to the fact that this is a great opportunity. See, I believe the gospel shines most brightly in the darkness. And yet we're sitting here going, oh, we're losing all of the foundation of, really? I'm not positive if it was that orthodox or biblical in the beginning. Let me promise you that. And so we find ourselves sort of defensive and, and fighting against this. And the result of that defensiveness is leading to churches that are dying. And, and, and some people in roles like, like, like mine are just quitting, not because they've disqualified themselves, just because they don't even know how to navigate in this season. All the things they were trained to do aren't working. There are hundreds of pastors leaving the ministry every month. People are leaving the church in droves. I don't know if you know this, but the fastest growing religious affiliation is none. And many churches are just closing their doors because they don't know how to navigate this season. And so into that, I want to give you my honest assessment. Honest, most, I believe, sober-minded, overtime assessment is that under the favor of Christendom, the Church of Jesus Christ got very superficial and shallow, which led to laziness when it came to self-sacrifice. Like, in that season, it was like, yes to Jesus, everyone agrees with me. Yes to the gospel, yes to salvation, yes to forgiveness, yes to eternity with God, yes to the Bible, but willing self-sacrifice for the fulfillment of the mission, like it's going to cost me something? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe later. Maybe when I've achieved what I believe is the American dream. Maybe when my family has grown to a point where I now have enough time where the sacrifice isn't really a sacrifice anymore. No, if the cost is too high, 
I'm not going to do it. The, the question I lead with when I walk into a church is, what is in it for me? That is completely counter to the example of Jesus. And we've been left with a church that's just seems to be more and more defensive and angry than capitalizing on the opportunity that God has put in front of us. We sometimes walk like victims more than we walk as victors. We're more worried about what's gone from the past than the opportunity for the future. And we wonder why the church is dying. And we wonder why the younger generation's going like, no, no, I don't want to do what you guys are doing. I want to do something different. Something that seems to be consistent with God's word, something that be, seems to be consistent with, a, with, with, with Jesus and what he's calling us to do and the purpose that he has. And so it's t- it is time to sound the alarm to, to, to some degree. And, but I'm not, I'm not sounding the alarm in some way like, oh my goodness, we're so defeated. I'm saying, can we grab on to what God is calling us to right now? And this passage calls us so that the world may know that I love the Father. And so three challenging questions this morning for each disciple to evaluate that could reveal a lack of self-sacrifice that has started to permeate into your life and mind and perspective about the church and your role in it. First question, are you focused on being a consumer or a contributor? Our culture focused on self has trained us to be consumers. Our question is what's in it for me? How is it going to benefit me? Jesus was like, for the joy set before me, the purpose of God, I'm willing to die. That's not really popular to our flesh or to our world or to our culture. Are you focused on being a consumer or a contributor? Are you just coming and consuming and looking for like, man, I, I, hope, I hope this church has this program because I just love this program. Or, or are you coming going, I know that in, through faith in Jesus Christ that the powerful work of God's Spirit has equipped me with a gift and I am looking and longing and praying both for how to use that to serve other people. This isn't, this isn't a church I attend. This is my church that I'm a part of and I'm going to contribute with the faith that God's given me and the giftedness He's put in front of me. I'm going to walk by faith in that. And, and not, in a, not in a prideful way, but, but I'm going to understand that what that means is our church is stronger if I'm doing that. As opposed to just sitting on the sidelines and hoping that some of the goodness just comes my way as I consume. Are you focused on being a consumer or a contributor? Then this next one. Are you excited with our mission or being missional? <laughs> I, like some of you are like, man, I love the mission here. Love God, love others, make disciples. I'm really glad our church is chasing after that. No, those who follow the example of Jesus' willing self-sacrifice for the fulfillment of the mission are like, that. I'm not excited because that's the mission of our church. I'm excited because I'm a part of fulfilling that mission. And, and my life and the way I live it is going to be lived so that I will help and support and come alongside fulfilling that mission. That's missional. Some of you are excited about the mission, but not excited about being missional. Thirdly, are you willing to intersect the lost to share the gospel? Let me be clear what I mean by this. I mean that that too often what's happened in the context of the church is 
And I'm telling you, there's drift here. We tend to drift towards the safety and the security of the church. When there's goodness in the gospel, there is safety in the context of the church and our relationships here, isn't there? And we walk out in the world, we're like, whoa, it's kind of it's, it's hot out here. There's lots of, lots of things being exchanged, lots of messes, lots of realities that I'm a bit uncomfortable with. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to default just to being about the church. And what happens then is the church starts to go inward focused and it grows very stale and shallow and superficial and it starts to die. Are you willing to intersect the loss to share the gospel? Are you more excited about the next service in our church or the next teaching series? Are you excited about how that can be an encouragement to you, can, can fill you up when we gather on Sunday mornings so that you can be equipped and prepared to go intersect your neighbors and welcome them into your home? To find lost people in your workplace and go, hey, I'd love to have lunch with you and just get to know you better. That's all it takes. To, to, to in the midst of your days and your life with your family, the people that you're around, that you pass by in and around the world, the parents that you sit next to at kids' sporting events or other school events, that you're leaning into relationship so that you might have the opportunity to communicate the gospel in addition to looking for opportunities to share Christ throughout your days. But are you really willing to make a sacrifice? What are we going to do to produce and promote missional contributors who are sharing the gospel with the world? Here's what we're chasing after in our church. First off, everything we do from worship to the word is to magnify the focus on Jesus and the gospel. If we're bored with Jesus, just shut us down. If we're bored with Jesus and the gospel. If the good news isn't continuing to grow in its goodness to us, Something's awry. So what we try to do here in every way, and one of our goals is to make much of Jesus, not a specific person or leader or pastor, not a specific ministry, and not even our church. We want to make much of Jesus. Over the past year, as we talked about, we've, we've been sort of restructuring our focus. And one of the things in this next year, probably even more than that, that we're going to give some, some concerted effort to is to make sure that we're developing uh, worship in services, live in groups, train in studies, and serve on teams. And, and this, is, this is what our church is going to do to try to produce disciples that make disciples. And so we're saturating our mission in all of it. And it's not just talking about the mission, it's how we become missional. This fall when we launch train in studies, it's a place for you to go and be like, okay, what are some of the essentials that I need to know as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Not just throw out a bunch of classes and things over and over again, or it's like, I just love being in classes forever. No, we attend that, we get trained so that we can fulfill the mission. Do we find our, where do we find our community at? In those things. To what end, though? To have a great church? That's not it. To, to give us great relationships and marriages and families? No, that's not the end. To grow a bigger church? Absolutely not. The end goal is the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan. Note this quote that has captured me and has gotten me processing through ministry in the context of our church and how we think about ministry. It confronts some things. 
It's from Todd Bolsinger, the guy who wrote Canoeing the Mountains. Look what he says. He's a leader in the church in numerous ways. Look what he wrote here. Christian community is not merely about connection, care, and belonging. Spiritual transformation is not just about becoming more like Christ as an end in itself. That's the problem with the church today. That's one of the primary reasons it's declining. Look what he says. Christian community is about gathering and forming a people and spiritual transformation is about both individual and corporate growth. Why? So that they together participate in Christ's mission to establish the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And everything that Jesus talks about in this passage, from his comment about needing to go, that we should rejoice in the redemptive plan of God, even when it causes it to go in a direction we didn't anticipate, the reality that the Father is greater than I, the declaration and the anticipation when I walk in that, that the enemy has no claim over me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. And without pause, he's like, rise, let us go from here. The plan is about to be fulfilled and unpacked even more. Are you willing, some of you, the move you need to make is just to be willing to sacrifice, to to be in the church week in and week out, to be encouraged and get your mind out of the world on the gospel. You need that. Some of you, it's going to be engaging in groups, rallying around other people, getting the care of your life to a place where you can model Jesus' example to the world. Some of you coming in the fall are going to be like, there's some things I need to understand more deeply. Yes, let's go there in training and studies. And then out of that, some of you just need to go, I just need to serve on a team. Maybe inside the church, maybe outside the church. I don't care. I just want the gospel to get out. One of the things that that, that I know we have not arrived yet is the, the problem that our church staff talks about regularly is that why is there not a more steady flow of disciples lining up to to serve the next generation in children and students? Here we could talk about the world all we want. The greatest amount of, of unbelievers or new believers are in children's ministry and student ministries. And so we might be like, oh, where, where can I go to, to intersect with the lost? They're right here in our church, not to mention adults that come in week in and week out that don't know the gospel. And, and so my question is, are, are, if we're focused on God's redemptive plan, we're going to be focused on investing in the next generation. We're going to rally together for mission. We're going to remind each other of this. We're going to have a passion for serving the church and serving the community. Orient your life around fulfilling God's redemptive plan. Correction, address self-centeredness. Encouragement, follow Christ's example of willing self-sacrifice. And I know that none of this will be possible without the work of God's Spirit. And so I'm energized by this because this is what I've given my life to. Not just to Jesus Christ, not just to salvation, but that reality so that I would live out of the calling that God's given me. And I'm just striving to serve using my gifts for as long as God gives me a breath in life. And to grow in that regularly. And I'm calling you to the same. But that's got to be a move of God's spirit. A response to God's love. Let's pray. God, I, um, I, I, I believe that, that although we can look around the reality of our world and, and sit and be depressed and troubled by the state of the church today. God, we can do that and just uh, grow defensive and angry and disappointed and, 
and frustrated and, and that will gain us nothing. And I could argue, God, that, and, and have seen that that could even be a, a scheme of the enemy. And it is a scheme of the enemy in the way the church has responded in this season. God, instead, would you magnify Jesus? Magnify the gospel and the good news. And, and as a result, let us see that, that, that the Spirit of God, when we put our faith in you, has deposited into us the power of the giftedness that you want to produce so that we can fulfill your redemptive plan and find in it protection, to find in that a purpose for our lives, that it would saturate everything that we do, every role that we have, so God, I'm asking that you would do this for your glory. Do what I cannot do. Bring more people to this place where they can't not give everything for you. God, I'm reminded in Hebrews where you said that for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Would joy be what compels us to serve you? Would joy be what would call us to a willing self-sacrifice? Would that grow and mature for some into new areas, for some maturing the path that they're already on? God, do it for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.